I remember the day when the chemistry teacher did that experiment where the teacher will expose magnesium to oxygen. And it doesn't just burn, but it burns so brightly that you have to wear goggles or else you could go temporarily blind. And it was brighter than bright. It was the brightest thing I've ever seen. And that is what I think of when I read this book. I read it with a kind of awe and a pleasure, but I read it with safety goggles on in a way. You know what I mean? Because it just burns so brightly. People are always like, she's always writing about feminism or mental health, etc. And you are so busy reading in between lines, you forget to read the actual lines. Yeah. So I think it's nice to like sit down and actually look at her language, which is often so beautiful. I also think it's cool to appreciate that she wrote a lot of her poems very quickly and that a lot of the stuff from Ariel was written right before she died. Like I said earlier, just like a fever dream. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Kaylee and Lydia about Sylvia Plath's book, Ariel. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will have you writing a strange kind of self-portrait. To begin with a quote of the day, two small quotes by Sylvia Plath herself. Here's the first. Writing, then, was a substitute for myself. If you don't love me, love my writing and love me for my writing. It is always much more, a way of ordering and reordering the chaos of experience. And here's the second. And by the way, everything in life is writable about if you have the outgoing guts to do it, and the imagination to improvise. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt. And for a chat about a few of our favorite poems by Sylvia Plath, let's go into that conversation with me and Kaylee and Lydia. Good, how are you? Good. Uh, here's Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. Good morning. This is a strange book. It's a wonderful and uh, brilliant, and I mean brilliant in the kind of sense of light. It's a very luminous book. I, horrible at chemistry, more or less ignored all of my high school chemistry classes, but I remember one thing. The day I remember the day when the chemistry teacher did that experiment, maybe you had to watch this experiment too, where the, the, the teacher will expose magnesium to oxygen and it doesn't just burn, but it burns so brightly that you have to wear goggles or else you could go temporarily blind. Was this done in your classes? Maybe not. I might've been absent that day. <laughs> you might've been absent. <laughs> this is the one thing from chemistry class that stuck with me, burning magnesium. It was brighter than bright. It was the brightest thing I've ever seen. And that is what I think of when I read this book. I read it with a kind of awe and a pleasure, but I read it with safety goggles on in a way, you know what I mean? Because it just burns so brightly. Robert Lowell calls it the autobiography of a fever. Um, if, we're if we're slightly kind of transmute this burning metaphor. Poems like Daddy and Lady Lazarus are part of this experience. I think they're a necessary part of this experience. They are poems that absolutely help give this book its luminous glow. but. As poems, those two poems, uh, I'm very ambivalent about, and um, I think she risks a lot of things that don't really pay off in those poems. So maybe it would, I, we don't have to talk about those poems. You've both said that you, you'd rather talk about other things, but I'm just saying that um, if we want to dip into those poems as a 
you know, in for five minutes or for 30 seconds here and there to talk about the risks that she's taking, not just in those pumps, but throughout the book and how those risks might sometimes pay off and might sometimes not pay off. You know, it'd be a lesser book without them, but as poems, I don't think that they work really. I feel like if they were published today, like she might kind of get like canceled in some way. Or yeah. yeah, like that kind of energy from them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and there are other poems. I mean, you know, there are other moments. It's not just those poems. I mean, she's taking similar risks throughout this whole book. Um, yeah, she has some other moments when she references some Holocaust imagery. Maybe what we'll do is, can I start with a B poem or two? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I want to start with a B poem or two, and then we can then we can move into your favorites. I'm full of metaphors today. This this burning magnesium is one metaphor I have for this book. But Sylvia Plath gives us her own metaphors. These B poems. Her father was a beekeeper or some kind of bee scientist, some kind of bee expert. I, I'm not quite sure. And people read these B poems as um, metaphors for um, lots of things, you know, kind of overordered patriarchal societies or kind of um, they read them as metaphors for Plath's interest in maternity and motherhood and womanhood. You know, these are, these are societies organized, governed by a queen and et cetera, et cetera. I like to read them in addition to those ways as Ars Poetica. An Ars Poetica poem is a poem that describes the process of writing poetry or the sources of poetry. It's a poem about poetry. So for, what do I mean exactly that these are ours poetica? Well, the B meeting is quite long and I'm, I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just read you a few bits of it. My experience of reading this book is like watching magnesium burn with goggles on or like being in the presence of these beehives, something being in the, being in the presence of something beautiful, complex, dangerous, but full of potential beauty. Yeah. So I think she's embedded into these poems, a description of her own art. So I'll just go to the B meeting, the B meeting. Who are these people at the bridge to meet me? They are the villagers, the rector, the midwife, the sexton, the agent for bees. In my sleeveless summary dress, I have no protection. This is me reading this book, Ariel. I feel immensely vulnerable, you know, and um, exposed. And they are all gloved and covered. Why did nobody tell me? They are smiling and taking out veils tacked to ancient hats. I am nude as a chicken neck. Does nobody love me? Yet here is the secretary of bees with her white shop smock, buttoning the cuffs at my wrists and the slit from my neck to my knees. Now I am milkweed silk. The bees will not notice. They will not smell my fear, my fear, my fear. I don't know about you, but rereading this book again, it makes you scared. What is she going to say next? You know, no, what is, what is she going to say next? It's a part of the experience of this book is to be slightly afraid. Um, I'll skip a bit. She sees these people, all oh, these different beekeepers, but she can't tell who they are because they're wearing these enormous suits. Is it the butcher, the grocer, the postman, someone I know? I cannot run. I am rooted and the gorse hurts me. So for all of these poems, dangers and risks, they, they keep me frozen to them. They're, they're impossible to look away from, I find. Um, I stand very still, she says, yeah? And then at the very end, she says, I am exhausted, I am exhausted, which is my experience of reading this book. Pillar of white and a blackout of knives, I am the magician's girl who does not flinch, which is such a great line. Sylvia Plath is performing 
certain magic tricks throughout this whole book. And I feel like I can't move because if I move, then maybe the trick will go wrong or something. And not to mention, I, I can't move because I'm slightly afraid for my, <laughs> for my own well-being here. I am the magician's girl who does not flinch. The villagers are untying their disguises. They are shaking hands. Who is that long white box in the grove? What have they accomplished? Why am I cold? Yeah, I mean, I read that. I, I finish this book and I think, wow, what what is it done to me? You know. So, I I, I want to poke around a little bit into the bee box as well, but I'll stop talking now and just ask you what you made of these bee poems. Ways in which you see the bees as a metaphor for her particular style of poetry. What what comments would you have about this question? Um. I was just, when I first read this, was just struck by the fact, like, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Zimborska. I think there was a poem from hers about, like, an ant or something like that. Oh, yeah. And so she kind of asked the same question, like, oh, what would this small insect think? But then mm-hmm. after that asks wildly different questions than Zimborska did. It's not like, oh, like, we're not thinking of the ant. It's like, there is a bee and I'm wearing a dress. And, like, yeah. and it just kind of unravels. So it shows you, like, you can start at like a similar place and then just go take a completely different direction with it. Really interesting. That's totally true. Zimborska would ask metaphysical questions about the nature of that creature. It's not that Plath isn't doing that, but she's clearly using these as kinds of self-portraits. Mm-hmm. She's using these, this creature to juxtapose her, her own. I mean, the, the subject of this poem really is her own reaction. Yeah. As much or more than the bees themselves. Yeah. So I actually highlighted part of this poem as one of the examples of a moment where she uses descriptive words that I described as like sickly sweet. Mm. And on the top of this the stanza where she says, I cannot run, I am rooted. She says, the white hive is snug as a virgin, sailing off her brood cells, her honey, and quietly humming. Virgin and honey aren't descriptive words that I would say are gross imagery because I feel like a lot of her poetry, her descriptive words can be described as some gross imagery. Because hmm. as you said, she goes for some shock value oftentimes. Yes. And she chooses words that are kind of jarring. But in some instances, which I think this is an example of this and like other instances in this poem, she uses imagery that's kind of really sweet in other contexts. But in this case, she kind of turns like the tone on its head and yeah. like everything seems, as you said, it's like kind of a fever dream mm-hmm. and everything that should be good and sweet is not. She's with these people that she wants to be a part of, obviously. And she's like, says they make, they're making me one of them. And she wanted to be part of them. Like, does nobody love me? All this stuff. And she should be happy, but everything kind of gets turned on its head. And then all of a sudden they're like, they're hunting the queen and everything goes dark. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's just, Sylvia Plath always just takes things where you'd never expect and uses words in a way you'd never expect. And everything just has this hint of darkness. She wants to wake you up. Yeah. I think that's part of the, part of the rhetorical intent of this book or the dramatic intent of this book she wants to shake you out of any kind of lethargy she's like the book is shaking you awake wake up you know so i love your comment about how she'll often present us images of things that should be pleasant or good or positive or sweet 
but she subverts these expectations. Probably the best examples, and I'm not done with the B poems yet, but since you raised it, we can't ignore what she does with these tulips and the poppies. You know, so the tulips in, in the tulips poem are, how does she describe them? Well, the tulips eat my oxygen and they're covered in white swaddling like an awful baby, right? Upsetting me with their sudden tongues and their color a dozen red lead sinkers around my neck. Yeah. And then in poppies in July, little poppies, little hell flames. Mm. Do you do no harm? You flicker. I cannot touch you. I put my hands among the flames. Nothing burns. And it exhausts me to watch you flickering like that wrinkly and clear red, like the skin of a mouth, a mouth just bloodied, little bloody skirts. <laughs> so yeah, she, she, I'll never look at poppies the same way again. Is, I mean, thank you. Sylvia Plath, I guess, but it it certainly makes for some unforgettable poems. Yeah. Even the punctuation in that, like the exclamation marks, it's not like shouting exclamation marks. It's like, oh, little bloody skirts. Ha ha. Like even the punctuation is kind of surprising. You're right, Lydia. It's, It's not, I think in so many of these poems, the tone is this wonderful mixture of levity or lightness or, um, can't think of a better word than levity and utter seriousness. She's trying to make jokes in an emergency is the, is the, is the balance that is sometimes struck. I'm talking about this bee box, the arrival of the bee box. Let me just read it. We don't have to spend too much time on it. And I don't necessarily have other questions other than maybe we could add a few more things to our list regarding how, because, because I think a question we need to attempt to ask, I guess I should say attempt to answer is well, let me back up. I think there are many, many, many great ways to write a poem. And I try to put onto a syllabus a variety of these ways to make sure that you know we're learning from books that are different from each other so that we have options. So what is it that th- this is the question that I think that we should attempt to start answering here? And we'll continue, of course, in class. But what is it that Sylvia Plath does that we haven't seen other poets so far this semester do? What is uniquely her the arrival of the bee box, or as I like to call it, the arrival, Amazon brings Sylvia Plath's book, you know, to my door, right? I ordered this, this clean wood box, square as a chair and almost too heavy to lift. I would say it was the coffin of a midget or a square baby were there not such a din in it. The box is locked. It is dangerous. I have to live with it overnight and I can't keep away from it. There are no windows, so I can't see what is in there. There is only a little grid, no exit. I put my eye to the grid. It is dark, dark with the swarmy feeling of African hands, minute and shrunk for export, black on black, angrily clambering. How can I let them out? It is the noise that appalls me most of all, the unintelligible syllables. It is like a Roman mob, small one by one, but my God, together. I lay my ear to furious Latin. I am not Caesar. I have simply ordered a box of maniacs. They can be sent back. They can die. I need feed them nothing. I am the owner. I wonder how hungry they are. I wonder if they would forget me if I just undid the locks and stood back and turned into a tree. There is the laburnum, its blonde colonnades and the petticoats of the cherry. They might ignore me immediately in my moon suit and funeral veil. I am no source of honey, so why should they turn on me? Tomorrow I will be sweet God. I will set them free. The box is only temporary. With such a, so first of all, to, to belabor this point, 
it's such a great description of her own poems, such a din in it. They are dangerous. And yet I can't keep away, you know, but also, isn't she just so good at metaphor? Furious Latin. This is what the bees sound like. You know, I lay my ear to furious Latin. What does Sylvia Plath do that the other poets don't that we have read? One of the things I like is how aware she is, I think, of pronouns. She uses it a lot. And I think understands how that can sound different. Like the second stanza, the box is locked. It is dangerous. It's just sounds a lot different than the box is locked. The box is dangerous. Um, yeah, I can't keep away from it. It It is dark, dark. Mm-hmm. I can't really explain it, but it just, it sounds more ominous than I think that box. I have written down here, she knows how to use mortar because we talked about bricks. Mm. And I think she knows the power of words like this and the, like mm. kind of stating it very plainly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And perhaps they help her. I don't want to get too analytical. I'm not really a fan of quote unquote interpretation, but perhaps this is one specific element of her poems that helps to give them this sense that the speaker of them is so alienated from the world. You know, it is dark. It's like it is over there. It is over there. And that there is this continual lack of intimacy between her and objects, her and other people, her and the tulips. These tulips, she's in the hospital. Someone has brought her flowers. They should be bringing her comfort, but she recoils from this. So the distance between her and the world is continually, continuously um, increasing. Yeah. I've always really loved Sylvia Plath. And one thing that I've always found about her poetry is... She was obviously very mentally ill, and it's not just, like, apparent in her subject matter. Uh Is what I always get when I'm reading her poetry is I always get this image in, like, the feeling that I get when I'm reading her poetry of a person sitting curled up in a ball just rocking because of her repetition. Is She just repeats things over and over again. Very good. All the time. And so it's just like someone who's sitting there rocking, like she'll say, where was it? It is dark, dark. Or like even in earlier poems, she'll say things in threes, like the B meeting. She says, my fear, my fear, my fear. It's like someone trying to reassure themselves constantly or who's just like kind of stuck in a loop over and over and over again. She does it so constantly that it would almost be annoying, but it's not. It's just so consistent Or she uses, like, anaphoras all the time. Uh Like, at the end of at least my first page, she says, I wonder how hungry they are. I wonder if they would forget me. Right. All the time, she's just repeating herself. She's just building on her own thoughts consistently. Excellent. It helps give the poems a rhythmic intensity. Yeah. If If you imagine a piece of music, like, what happens in a piece of music when the drum beat gets faster? Yeah. It... I mean, this is called crescendo. Exactly. Yeah. Crescendo. So even small repetitions, it is dark, dark, my fear, my fear, my fear. This is one thing that makes daddy, the poem daddy, such a sonically captivating poem. I think sonically daddy is extremely captivating, partly in in part because of the rhymes, but all the repetitions, ich, 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 you know, and then daddy, daddy, she keeps repeating this word, you know. The word Jew gets repeated over and over again. You do not do, you do not do is the first line of this poem. So that's something very important that you've put your hand on. 
maybe this is a stupid question. Maybe uh, is this easy to implement in our own work? Right. So, oh, the the takeaway is repeat more. So I'll start repeating more. What could go wrong? How does she do it well? All over the book, I have written repetitions with revisions because I don't think it's just repetitions. She like changes it every time. And for me, it almost sounded like she was undermining her own thoughts. Like she was never really sure of anything. I thought about it as like, oh, maybe I'm in a Zoom class and I just said this thought I'm really confident about. And then I end it with, if you think that's right, or like, if that makes sense, or I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so I'm super confident about this. And then I just undermine everything I said. And now everyone who's listening to me is not sure if I actually think I'm correct, if anything I said is correct. Yeah, so yeah. whenever she starts, like, I am blank, I'm blank. It's like, well, are you this or that? And right. you're just, you're confused with her. Excellent. Repetition with revision. So it's not just enough to repeat. Um, repeat, but get a little bit of uh, change as well. This is a very important poetic principle we're learning from her. We should turn to one of your poems. So where should we, which of your two favorites should we go to next? We can go to mine. Sure. The Applicant. I think it's page um, four in our book. Excellent. Yep. Page four. Uh, the Applicant. Kaylee, do you want to read it? Yes. The Applicant. First, are you our sort of person? Do you wear a glass eye, false teeth, or a crutch, a brace or a hook, rubber breasts or a rubber crotch? Stitches to show something's missing? No, no. Then how can we give you a thing? Stop crying. Open your hand. Empty? Empty. Here is a hand to fill it and willing to bring teacups and roll away headaches and do whatever you tell it. Will you marry it? It is guaranteed to thumb shut your eyes at the end and dissolve of sorrow. We make new stock from the salt. I notice you are stark naked. How about this suit? Black and stiff, but not a bad fit. Will you marry it? It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs through the roof. Believe me, they will bury you in it. Now your head, excuse me, is empty. I have the ticket for that. Come here, sweetie, out of the closet. Well, what do you think of that? Naked as paper to start, but in 25 years, she'll be silver and 50 gold, a living doll everywhere you look. It can sew, it can cook, it can top, top, top. It works, there is nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it, marry it, marry it? Okay, so what makes you uh, admire and love this poem? And, and of course, you know what, what does it teach you about writing your own poetry? So I guess this one refers back to the repetition. It has a lot of repetition. It has the revision. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't just have the repetition, boom, three in a row. It repeats things throughout the poem, kind of has like the will you marry it is referred to multiple lines in the poem, which I think is interesting. Empty is referred to a couple times in the poem. This one struck me because I thought that the just the idea of the poem was so creative. And like we said earlier, the shock value of this poem, I thought was so interesting. Knowing Sylvia Plath's life story and like what she struggled with as an author, I can see why she would write a poem like this. Her experiences as a woman and like, I feel like some of her other poems like the B-Box poems, some of them can be interpreted under the lens of like struggling with her identity. And some people have interpreted it under like her identity as a woman. Mm -hmm. This poem, 
she's kind of talking about like there's basically someone's kind of trying to pitch a bride to a yeah. man which is so interesting because it's just this transactional sale mm-hmm. like you you have this need you need a woman and they're pitching it to him and the in- most interesting part to me is when they describe her and they were like come here sweetie out of the closet well what do you think of that make it as paper yeah. to start and they were like a living doll everywhere you look it can sue it can cook it can talk 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 mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting to me and like lydia said her like use of pronouns mm-hmm. and her choice to describe it as an it i think mm-hmm. is just so telling of her view of herself not necessarily of woman as a whole but of herself Love that. It, a companion to this poem, and I, and I want to hear Lydia's reaction to this poem as well, a companion piece to this poem, so we're not turning away from it, but it reminds me, another great thing about this book is how like, the B poems are all different. They're all the same topic, but they approach this topic from different perspectives and different angles. And they're all doing slightly different work. So they echo each other, but they're different. So you, to read across the poems in this book is to Again, repetition with difference. Some same themes will come up, but in a slightly different way. The Munich Mannequins is a poem that comes to mind when when we're when we're discussing the applicant because it's about mannequins, its, you know, who are shaped like women. The first line of the Munich Mannequins is one of my favorite lines in this whole book. Perfection is terrible. It cannot have children. <laughs> you know, so uh, to compare your body with a mannequin's body is on one way demoralizing because it's this slightly unreal shape, yeah? Quote-unquote perfection, but totally dead, totally sterile, totally devoid of anything that it means to be a human. Yeah, Lydia, what, what what's your reaction to the applicant? I mean, Kaylee's given us a lot to work with here. Yeah, I think the thing I noticed first was the use of it because it's literally objectifying her. Like, she is an object. She does not get a pronoun. Yeah. So, like, the only time I see the word she is in the second to last stanza, but in 25 years, she'll be silver. Like, that's the only time she's not it, mm-hmm. which I think is super interesting. And then the other thing was, like, how quickly she switches between, like, super vague sentences and then really specific. Like, first, are you a sort of person? How wildly vague. And then a glass eye, false teeth, a crutch. Mm-hmm. I don't know one person with a glass eye. Like, that's so specific. And I think it kind of like gives you that sort of fever dream aesthetic because you're like, are we talking really specific or she just goes between them so fast. How can we give you a thing? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, Yeah. I love what you say about the the she'll be silver. It's almost accidental. Like, oops, I let it slip. I let her humanity accidentally slip out once. We have to go back into the it. (laughs) Let's, Let's cover that up, that little accidental slip up. It's very heartbreaking. It can talk, 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 talk. It's like they're describing a robot, you know? If you have a problem, it can fix that problem. If you get cut, right? If you have a hole, here's a wound, a poultice, right? A band-aid. If you have an eye, it's an image. It's something to look at. You know, you will marry it, marry it, marry it. She loves that triple triple form. Here's a question. Um, it's not immediately clear. You know, you might have to read through a couple of times. We've talked a lot about the importance of clarity in this class. Um, we've read a couple other poets um, maybe Walmanholm, maybe Walcott, who dabble with uncertainty. I'm not sure what word we want to use. Mystery, opacity, um, who risk strategic vagueness. Lydia, you used the, the phrase fever dream to describe this. It's it's slightly 
the experience of reading this poem is to not know where you are immediately. Yeah. If you were starting like a movie or something and they gave you like absolutely no establishing shot and you're just like in the house, you know, when they usually show that image of some house on a beach and then you're in the house. Yes. Yes. The first thing and you're just like already in it in the conversations and you have no idea where you are. And you could kind of have to pick up the pieces. And then and then they would like cut to a banana. And then they would cut to, I don't know, yeah. a, 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 a girl in a swing on a playground. So you're being told implicitly that these connect, but you, how? You're asking yourself how, 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 how? So this is the question for us aspiring writers. How does Sylvia Plath achieve just enough mystery to entice us or to please us, or to, yeah, I mean, mystery is appealing, isn't it? Don't we like mystery? How does she achieve enough mystery to keep us reading, but not so much mystery that we feel locked out of the poem? We all know that a poem has to be a little bit, poem has to be, I shouldn't be using such phrases. Um, We all love it when a poem, what am I trying to say, is mysterious. I'm just now doing the plath thing of repeating myself. We all love mystery, but we don't love confusion. How does she achieve mystery and not confusion? I don't know. Maybe it's like, you know, when you are learning how to do an essay in like elementary school and they're like, you need to have your hook. I feel like every single stanza is just like a hook. You never really get to the main idea until like the very end. And you're just like, ah, will you marry it? Or it could be that the, instead of a thesis statement, what she's giving us is a, is a poem made up entirely of hooks, but If we get to the end of the poem, we can use those hooks to triangulate what must be at the center. Oh, I know what salute, I know what situation is being described here because when Dickinson says, Emily Dickinson says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. So instead of Plath is uh, not looking directly at this phenomenon and uh, describing it, her goal is not to tell it straight, utterly clearly, it's to kind of paint a picture of it in profile. I don't know if that makes any sense. Because honestly, some poems I read, I don't know what they're about. Because in some poems, she maybe doesn't actually succeed in giving us enough clarity. Could be possible that she's having to negotiate this tightrope. Um, and some poems, it's not enough. And some poems, it's too much. Well, I think that even in those poems where she doesn't give you a lot of clarity, she does really well at establishing really clear images And she also, in her poetry, like similar to authors we've read earlier on, she asks a lot of questions, clear questions in her Uh poetry that kind of immediately wakes up the reader and kind of raises their consciousness. If ever I'm being lost in a poem, she asks a question or it uses like really clear statements, just short statements that are very like clear Uh very applicable just like immediately that are kind of very easy to follow so even i feel like if the subject matter is difficult to follow her language is easy to follow and so poetry isn't always easy to understand and even the easiest poems i think to someone who is unfamiliar to poetry starting out it would be difficult to understand Mm. for example if we're still looking at the applicant which i'm still opened up to She starts out with, first, are you our sort of person, which Lydia already pointed out is a very plain sentence. And immediately the applicant isn't very clear as to what it's talking about. She starts going off about a glass eye, false teeth, a crutch, rubber breasts and rubber crotch. 
and you're like, what? Yeah, is, is this a, is this a Salvador Dali painting? Where what? Where are we? Yeah. Yeah, you would have no idea where the poem is going based off of even the first three stanzas. She says, "Will you marry it?" And you still don't know it. Mm-hmm. She hasn't referred to a she. You still have no idea what it's talking about. To thumb shut your eyes at the end and dissolve sorrow. It's not until the end of the poem when you have a clear understanding. And even then, it's not very clear of what's happening. But her language is kind of short, abrupt. She has such beautiful pictures, the repetition. It's her language that's easy to follow. So you can do your own interpretation at the end. Like as long as you get to the end of the poem, you can do your own interpretation at the end. And she hangs on to your attention for long enough for you to make it there. Exactly. You must have had, I mean, you didn't, I guess, have the couriers open in front of you because you said you still had the applicant open in front of you. But the two techniques that you named, when I asked the question, when I made the statement, because sometimes her poems aren't clear, the poem that my brain went to is the couriers. This is on page two in certain editions. I've reread and reread and reread this poem. I'm not, I don't quite know what it's about. The couriers. Uh, is, this, is this a male men poem? It's a poem about FedEx. I'm not quite sure what's what's what what is this poem about? The word of a snail on the plate of a leaf? Question mark. So first of all, it's like, what? Extremely, as you say, Kaylee, um, dazzling images. So she'll keep you reading to the end because it's like snails, plates, leaves. I want more of that. It's like candy. I want more of that candy. It is not mine. Do not accept it combined with statements that are extremely clear. The context is not clear, but those statements are quite clear. So I'm like, okay, there's some more clarity. Oh, and look, there's some more candy. Oh, and look, there's some more clarity. So she keeps me reading to the end. Sometimes the accretion of all of this candy and all of this clarity clues me in to her topic. Other times it doesn't. And you know what? I'm just, I, it suffices to say, thank you for what the poem gave me. It gave me some wonderful images. It gave me a kind of force, you know what I mean? Okay, so Lydia, you wanted to take us to which poem again? Oh, the moon and the yew tree, right? Yeah, it should be on page 41. 41. So this is oh, 41. Yeah. You and me might have slightly different problem oh. with this book, but I know it's in here somewhere. Let me find the page. 41 or 46. People listening can have their pick here. Uh, okay, so Lydia, do you want to read it um, if you want? Yeah. And um, yeah, let's do the same thing. Let's talk about why we love it and what it can teach us. This is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. The trees of the mind are black. The light is blue. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God, prickling my ankles and murmuring of their humility. Fumy spiritus mists inhabit this place, separated from my house by a row of headstones. I simply cannot see where there is to go. The moon is no door. It is a face in its own right, white as a knuckle and terribly upset. It drags the sea after it like a dark crime. It is quiet with the ogape of complete despair. I live here. Twice on Sunday, the bells startle the sky, eight great tongues affirming the resurrection. At the end, they soberly bong out their names. The yew tree points up. It has a gothic shape. The eyes lift after it and find the moon. The moon is my mother. She is not sweet like Mary. Her blue garments unloose small bats and owls. How I would like to believe in tenderness. The face of the effigy, gentled by candles, bending on me in particular its mild eyes. I have fallen a long way. Clouds are flowering blue and mystical over the face of the stars. Inside the church, the saints will all be blue. 
floating on their delicate feet over the cold pews, their hands and faces stiff with holiness. The moon sees nothing of this. She is bald and wild. The message of the yew tree is blackness, blackness and silence. This poem is so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Uh, specifically how and why, Lydia? Well, I mentioned this a little bit earlier with the bee poems, but I think she really just knows how to use that mortar. Like she knows that in certain situations, seemingly helping words like the and is can be really beneficial. Like specifically the second line I'm thinking of, the trees of the mind are black, the light is blue. Like if you do a ratio of like concrete words versus like <laughs> linking words, it's yeah. like half and half, but it's so powerful because it's like the light is blue. Like, thank you for telling me. And I think this plain language really contrasts with the subject matter. Like we talked about in like the poppy poem, little poppies, but you're talking about like hellflowers or something mm -hmm. like in this one, it's so wildly imaginative and you don't really know what's going on for the content, but the language is so plain that you're like, am I the crazy person? Because I don't understand this. Like, cause I didn't understand that like the mind is black and the light is blue. Like, and it just kind of makes you question yourself a little bit. Okay. You've, you've, you've given us a great start. Verb, the, 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 the to be verb is, are, were, am, you know, all of the variations of the to be, to be verb gets a bad rap. People say you shouldn't use it. It's not dynamic enough. It's too plain. This is often advice I get in poetry workshops. It's also an advice I hear being given in poetry workshops. Replace the to be verb with more active, more dynamic, more vivid verbs. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe as a rule of thumb, maybe. But isn't there something so lovely and so captivating, childlike in the best way? I don't mean this in a, in a diminutive way. Mm -hmm. The trees of the mind are black. The light is blue. She's like, okay, what do I know? What can I assert for certain? And let me tell it as plainly as I can possibly tell it. The mm -hmm. light is blue. So don't underestimate the power of simplicity and the power of that to be verb. Um, and also that repetition. I mean, it's slightly repeated grammatical forms. The, the X is Y. The X is our Y. The A is B. Yeah. And then, as you say, Lydia, the mix of that simplicity or plainness with a kind of Van Goghian... You know, Van Gogh's Starry Night isn't really how the sky looks. Yeah. But yet we look at that painting and we don't react and say, this isn't how the sky looks. We're like, yeah, I buy that. So the trees of the mind are black. We read that and we think, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. I, I know what that is. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God. This is like the Van Gogh equivalent. This isn't really literal. It has an emotional truth. I keep thinking of the line, it drags the sea after it like a dark crime. It is quiet with the okay of complete despair. And you're like, what's going on? And then she's like, I live here. And you're like, of course you do. Like, she's not yeah. trying to convince you. She's just like, this is how it is. And like, yeah. I'm not going to try to like argue with you because I know it's right. It's the opposite, I think, of the repetitions with revisions. Like here, she's so confident. She's like, this is how it is. The moon drags the sea after it like a dark crime. Wow. I've never heard the tide described in such a wonderful, dark, creepy, beautiful, surprising way. I loved this poem because I feel like it was different from a lot of her poems. Mm. It was shocking in its own right, but it didn't have the same shock value as a lot of her other poems. Right. I found a lot of the images to be kind of beautiful in their own way. 
they weren't like traditionally beautiful, mm. but they weren't gross like some of the images in the other poems. Like when she says, the moon is no door, it is a face in its own white, right, white as a knuckle and terribly upset. Like I found that to just sound beautiful. Like some of her images in the poem, she'll say, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> be- like terribly disgusting and disturbing. And I love it. But like, you know, and I thought that this poem was beautiful. Like the moon in the yew tree. It just yeah. sounds lovely. And even though the subject matter isn't always beautiful, I just thought that a lot of her choices in this were kind of different than some of the other poetical choices that she usually makes. I was like, why is this poem different? And I looked up kind of some background matter about the poem. And it said that her husband, she was struggling to write poems and was kind of had some writer's block. And her husband, Ted Hughes, was like, write about the scene outside of our window. Mm. And there was supposedly a yew tree and she wrote it during a full moon. And so she wrote this poem. And I was like, it's very interesting that this poem is different than all the other poems that she writes usually, typically. Yeah. She was struggling. And then she writes this poem that in my opinion is different than her typical thing that she usually writes. And I still think it's strikingly beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. That's great. I didn't know that little anecdote. Proof that you can you can find poems everywhere. You don't need to live a volatile, dramatic life. You just look out the window and you can write one of the most beautiful poems, you know, based on what you see. Also proof that she's a better poet than... She's one of those poets who's better than her reputation would let you think. Her reputation yeah. is very high. She's a very well-respected, extremely well-respected, lasting poet. She's even better than people say that she is because, because Daddy and Lady Lazarus are the poems that people, they're always in the anthologies, they're the poems that people go to. But The Moon in the Yew Tree, oh man, she can do so much more than what people think she can do. You know what I mean? So it's, it's very good that we highlighted this poem. It is melancholic, of course, blackness and silence. Melancholic, but it's so quiet and so restrained and so lush. I, we didn't get to talk about morning song, which is okay. And, and maybe before we hang up here in three minutes, I'll sneak in a, a line or two from it. But do either of you have anything that you wanted to say about Plath or any of these poems that we haven't said yet? I think for Plath, a lot of the time it's easy. Like when you're, people are always like, oh, like she's always writing about like feminism or like mental health, et cetera. And you are so busy reading in between lines, you forget to read the actual lines or like yeah. at least that's how <laughs> I felt sometimes when reading it. Yeah. So I think it's nice to like sit down and actually look at her language, which is often so beautiful. I can agree with that. Sylvia Plath did a lot with a lot of her poetry. And that it's true, a lot of people do overlook some of the nuances with a lot of her poems and look for the the nitty gritty, like... Sensationalist. Yeah, that kind of aspect of her poetry. I also think it's cool to appreciate that she wrote a lot of her poems very quickly and that a lot of the stuff from Ariel was written right before she died. Yeah. And I think it's cool to look at a lot of the poems within that perspective i'm not sure which of the poems were written within that shorter time period because i know some of them were from earlier on in her life or in her writing but just 
the fact that she was able to write some of these so quickly, some yeah. of the images, like I said earlier, just like a fever dream, just that she would live her experiences and to just put them in these words and yeah. see things in that way, I think is brilliant. So I really enjoyed reading this. Two or three poems a day is insane. You know, yeah, we, have, we have the contrast of, of Bishop, Bishop spending 20 years on the moose and Plath writing two or three of these a day. I don't think two or three poems a day is a pace that is recommendable or that the rest of us mere mortals could keep up with. Not benchmark. No, that's right. Uh, Edge, the poem Edge, I think was written, we will all go reread it now and break our hearts. It's heartbreaking to read. It's heart even more heartbreaking to read knowing that I think she wrote it four or four or five days or maybe six within a week of her death. Um, so yeah, right up to the very end. Uh, images, man, she's so good at how could you not love how how could a poet not last who is capable of writing things like love set you going like a fat gold watch, describing a baby like a fat gold watch, or the baby's moth breath, or the clear vowels of the baby's cry rising like balloons. I mean, it's just so, so, so gorgeous. So gorgeous. Thank you both for an extremely great chat. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. As you heard about briefly in that chat, Ariel includes this series of bee poems in which she's looking at bees and beehives and bee cultivation from a lot of different perspectives. She's also, as we mentioned, using this as a means of self-discovery and self-investigation, even though that aspect of the poems is kept subtextual. And so for this writing prompt, I want you to think about doing something similar. Begin drafting notes and lines for a series of poems about an animal, any animal you'd like but an animal in which you seek to understand aspects of yourself. Just like Sylvia Plath does, focus on that animal, don't refer to yourself, but see if your explorations of the life of this creature can shed light on you and your own existence and your own experiences. This is a long-term, ongoing writing prompt because I want you to do this not only once, drafting one poem, but I want you to draft another and another and another. Come at this from several angles. I think the multiplicity of bee poems in this book adds a lot of dimension and nuance, both to the bees and in the ways in which that they're self-portraits of her. That's it for now. Coming soon will be two recordings about the poetry of Robert Frost. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet. Mm-hmm.